Welcome to the USGA Green Section Podcast, your source for all things golf course management. I'm John Petrovsky, host and education manager in the Green Section. In our final episode of 2023, we caught up with Dr. Paul Koch at the University of Wisconsin. He got us up to speed on the Big Winter Turf Research Project and provided some tips to help get your turf through winter in great shape. Dr. Paul Koch, thanks for joining us today as folks in the North settle in for winter. Uh, We thought it was a good time of year to have you on to discuss some winter-related topics. So before we start, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your current role at the University of Wisconsin? Sure, John. First off, thanks to the USGA for uh, having me on the, the podcast today. Happy to be here and, and, and talk winter. That's, that's certainly one of the main things that we focus on in my lab. So my name is Paul Koch. I'm an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the Department of Plant Pathology. And uh, so I'm a turf grass pathologist, and I've been here as a professor since 2014. Uh, and my, uh, the, the main things that we focus on in, in my lab are snow mold and dollar spot and sort of sustainable management strategies for both of those diseases. Uh, we also do quite a bit of research in disease predictive modeling. We were one of the groups that worked on the creation of the Smith-Kearns dollar spot predictive model. And we are working on a couple of additional models uh, right now for snow mold prediction. And uh, we also do a fair amount of research in turfgrass microbiomes and how we can use the power of the microbiome to help us uh, maintain turfgrass more sustainably. So that's kind of that's kind of what we focus on. Very cool, Paul. We wanted to lead off today with a discussion around the Winter Turf Project. So it's a big project funded by the USDA Specialty Crop Research Initiative which is also funding the Resist POA project. So over 30 scientists at 10 institutions in the U.S. and Europe, you guys are all coordinating efforts on this. Could you give us an overview of who's involved and kind of what the long-term goals are of this project? It's a big project. Um, You mentioned 30 people, 10 institutions. It's really uh, being organized and led by Dr. Eric Watkins at the University of Minnesota. They were the submitting institution for the grant, and they sort of do all the central organization uh, and make sure that we're all on track and doing what we said we would do when when we submitted the grant. But there's a lot of people on it. I believe the institutions are the University of Minnesota, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I'm at, uh, UMass, University of Massachusetts, Rutgers, Ohio State, Iowa State also has some work, Oregon State out west. And then you mentioned collaboration with, uh, with uh, European groups as well. And that's through, uh, through groups, uh, research groups in Norway. And so it's, it's a large uh, group of institutions that are collaborating together on a number of projects that will hopefully allow us to better understand how the various forms of winter injury occur and the, the better we understand them. Hopefully, we can develop some strategies that allow us to uh, prevent that winter injury from occurring. And in the unfortunate situations when it does occur, we have some strategies and some best management practices for how we can recover from it as quickly as possible and get the golfers back out there and the revenue coming back in. So those, that's kind of the overarching goal. Again, it's a big, complex project, a lot of different things happening. But that's really our goal is to understand winter injury better so we can prevent it and recover from it as quickly as possible. Great. It's a topic that always rears its head somewhere in the springtime and can sneak up on folks quickly. And at the USGA, we fund about $2 million a year in research, but there are some things that scientists rely on the support of the federal government for. And I think we got to give credit where credit's due. And and the federal government 
funding research, not just the USDA research, but the NIH and a lot of other research is an important. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, 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 the research is expensive and to do good research is expensive. And a big project like this would just not be something that would be would be effectively done uh, through the various industry groups. And we're very supportive of the, of the research funding that USJ provides. My program has been the benefit of, of USJ funding on multiple occasions. It's great research funding. The GCSAA provides research funding, various state associations. That's really important money. But the money that that we can get from the USDA is just a bigger, it's a bigger pot of money. So this is a multi-million dollar grant that we're on. The Resist POA is a multi-million dollar grant. Other screes that have gone towards fight fescue development and uh, developing uh, warm season grasses. These are these really large, really large grants that that require a lot of money to do effectively. And that's where the that's where the federal government comes in. Funding was awarded in 21, 2021. Uh, the Winter Turf website lists some early results on a few projects. Some that may be of interest to superintendents include Project Icebreaker, which is an awesome name, by the way, uh, Top Dressing as a Winter Stress Prevention Strategy, and How Impermeable Covers Affect the Need for Fungicides. Now, we don't have time to go into depth on each one, but can you kind of briefly discuss any any key findings so far from any of the projects? Yeah, I'd be happy to provide uh, some brief updates, and the listeners can all uh, can also find a lot of these uh, these updates as well at the Winter Turf website. It's easy to so just Google Winter Turf uh, University of Minnesota. So a lot of information on that website, a lot of updates, uh, newsletters get sent out on a regular basis, so you can sign up. Uh, superintendents can sign up to to receive those uh, those newsletter updates. But brief updates on some of the research that's 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 going on. You mentioned the Icebreaker Project. That's actually a Norwegian led project. Scandinavia ice injury is a huge, huge issue for golf in, in Scandinavia. And so our colleagues in Norway are, uh, have been leading that effort for a number of years. And they found a number of, uh, of interesting results that covers, you mentioned covers before. And, and so they've really found that covers can be beneficial, um, but you, you sort of have to have the right cover for the right situation. Uh, and so, you know, if you're primarily interested in preventing crown hydration injury, where water is freezing near the surface and damaging the crown, well, a permeable cover is not going to provide the best benefit in, in those situations. Um, and so it, you would want to go more with an impermeable cover. So the, the Icebreaker Project really was looking at different covers and what kind of winter injury they prevent. And really, they found some interesting results uh, in Norway that impermeable covers can certainly provide protection against uh, crown hydration injury. But you do have to have some air exchange underneath. Otherwise, you'll suffocate the turf. Um, and so you have to find a way to either pump some air in there and get some air exchange or find some other way to do that. So that's some of the brief results that they found uh, there with with the icebreaker project. We're also, you know, looking at other um, impacts of, of covers. My lab several years ago looked at the impacts of covers on snow mold development. And we found that there wasn't a huge impact of permeable covers on snow mold development. But impermeable covers did have a pretty large impact and about doubled the amount of snowmold pressure uh, under an impermeable cover compared to no cover at all. So it's kind of one of those things where, you know, you don't want to you want to be cognizant. You want to be aware if if you're going to implement a strategy to lessen one type of winter injury that you want to know if you're increasing your chances for a different type of winter injury, because the, the factors that cause the different types of winter injury can be very, very different. Now, the top dressing one stood out to me because we've seen that strategy deployed. And, and some of the superintendents I've talked to, they just cover them with sand in an effort to protect them through the winter. Is that an effective strategy? And was anything looked at from that aspect in the research? 
so that research, uh, we, we don't have a lot of results on that research yet, as far as I'm aware. Um, and so the, the thought process there is you provide some protection, some cushioning to the crown. So there's some protection from a desiccation standpoint. And there's also, you know, the ability to keep some of that water a little bit away from freezing right at the crown. If you have quite a bit of sand there, it's going to kind of try to keep some of that ice formation away from the crown a little bit. Makes perfect sense from a, you know, if you think about it, uh, not a lot of research behind it. And that that study is still underway. So we don't we don't have a lot of data to share on that. I will say, though, that, you know, it's uh, winter injury protection aside, it's also a nice way to get some sand into the canopy, right? Because over the course of the winter, that works its way into the canopy, snow melts, rainfall events throughout the winter. And you come out typically next, uh, the following spring with a pretty good amount of sand that has already worked its way into the canopy. So sort of winter injury effects aside, it's, it's a pretty nice way to start your spring season off with a pretty good, a pretty good dollop of sand in the canopy. Excellent point. Help you hit that target number. Superintendents are on the front lines, of course, dealing with winter injury. And they've played a pretty important role in data collection for the project. Could you explain how superintendents have been involved in the Winter Turf Project and how anyone that deals with winter injury and is interested in becoming involved can get involved? Yeah, so that's a, that's a unique aspect of this project. And that is not only the um, the encouragement of, of outside participants and golf course superintendents to participate in this project, but the, the need, the requirement for us to have outside participants. When we proposed this to the USDA, um, this project, and we went and asked for a couple million dollars, we said that we would have golf course superintendents participate and feed us data. For as large as this project is, with 10 different universities, we still can't put out a large enough number of research sites around the country and around the world to really provide enough data enough meaningful data to us to be able to really predict where in winter injury might occur. And that's really one of the central goals. So that's why we've enlisted the help of, of golf course superintendents from, again, not only around the U.S., but around Canada, around uh, parts of Northern Europe and Scandinavia. And so that's a really important part of this project because it allows us to collect a whole lot of data uh, that will allow us to feed into some various predictive models and hopefully allow us to get a better handle on, on when winter injury occurs. And so if you're interested in, in participating, um, you can sign up at the Winter Turf website. So you go to that Winter Turf website, uh, you click under the tab data collection, and there'll be a, a spot for you to sign up there. It's it's quick, takes about you know five minutes a week. We ask you to sort of survey one or two greens on your golf course throughout the winter. Uh, you're going to survey it for snow depth, for water collection, any visual uh, winter injury that's present on the course. So it's pretty limited time. Um, a time requirement for, for the superintendent, but a big help for us on the research side. So uh, if that interests you, if you've had winter injury on your course in the past, I certainly encourage you to go to the Winter Turf website and check that out under the data collection tab. Switching gears a little bit to winter injury in general, I heard an interesting back and forth recently on when or how you should deal with prolonged ice cover on greens. It can get nerve wracking after weeks of ice cover as some folks will remove it with good results and others say removing it caused injury or death. So when should you get worried about ice encasement and what should you do about it if you feel like you need to remove it? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't. I, I wish I had a clear, distinct answer for you, but unfortunately I don't. What I would say is don't remove the ice unless you feel you absolutely have to because it's a large labor uh, investment, a large time investment. And it also, you know, I, th I, I think it's almost 50-50. Uh, 
about half the time we see the, the process of the ice removal be more damaging than the ice itself. So unless you feel that it's absolutely necessary for you to go out and remove that ice, I wouldn't, I wouldn't remove it. Now, I, I, I can't really provide much information on exactly what situations, uh, you know, should you go out and remove ice? Um, there's, there are a whole bunch of different things that go into it, right? There's, there's some of the biology and agronomy of the, of the system that comes into play, but there's also economic aspects. There's political aspects. I've heard that many, many times, you know, I, I wasn't sure if it was going to help or not. I wanted to show the club that I was doing something to, to try and prevent it. Right. So I've heard that a lot of times as well. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different things that go into it, not just the agronomic aspects. And unfortunately we don't have a great feel on the agronomic side of when ice removal should be done. Um, certainly we know that if you have annual bluegrass, that's something that you should be aware of, winter injury, of course. It's very, very rare for a creeping bent grass to, to, to get winter injury aside from snow mold. Uh, so that's that's very rare. So if you have bent grass, you're probably not really worried about ice, ice cover or ice removal. So we're, we're almost always talking about annual bluegrass. And if you're in an area where you've seen it in the past, if you know you have quite a bit of, of ice cover on, on certain parts of the greens, and you've had it there for you know a month or longer, then then it would start to you know start to process in your mind. I would I would probably go out and try and um, you know at least wait a month of of solid ice cover uh, until you even consider removing some of that ice. And and the type of ice matters. You know when we have sort of that ice skating rink ice that's very clear, uh, very solid. That's the ice that's concerning because we're not seeing any sort of air exchange or gas exchange. And so when we have ice cover like that, we're really concerned about uh, suffocation of the turf and a buildup of toxic gases underneath the ice. And so that's the ice we're really concerned about. The the sort of the the cloudy ice with kind of air bubbles and pox through there that, that you know, you, you, you wouldn't really ice skate on, um, or at least not smoothly ice skate on. Um, that's less of a concern because typically we see more gas exchange with that kind of ice. So the type of ice matters, the depth of ice matters, how long it's on there. And I wish I could give you sort of very direct answers, but there's no data that supports direct answers in that. And that's hopefully something with this project we can get more information on. But as of right now, we're still lacking there. Very good. Yeah, it can be frustrating for some superintendents, even next door to each other, approach things the same way and get whacked with it. So it's Yeah, it's so it's so bizarre. Winter injury is so weird. And uh, the, the just minor changes in the climate and the weather can have huge impacts on winter injury. And I'll give an example from Wisconsin. We haven't had a large, widespread winter injury uh, event in Wisconsin since, you know, I don't even want to mention the year because I don't want to jinx us, but it was like 2004 or five. And, uh, but we have little pockets of winter injury uh, every now and then. And a few winters ago was really interesting because uh, right along Lake Michigan, the golf courses in Wisconsin, right along Lake Michigan, had severe winter injury. N numerous courses from Green Bay all the way down south of Milwaukee. A lot of courses and a lot of very high-end, well-known golf courses had significant winter injury uh, that were right along the lake. You go 30 minutes away from the lake, there was zero winter injury all throughout the rest of the state. So clearly something about that proximity to the lake, that particular winter, led to a lot of winter injury. And we've seen that in the past, right? Small changes in distance lead to big uh, changes in the amount of winter injury that, that occurs. And from the superintendent's vantage point, it's almost worse when you're one of a few or when, you, when you're the only one that has winter injury compared when the entire region has it. Uh, because then it's like, well, what the hell did I do different that, uh, than my neighbor 10 miles down the road? Because the golfers are playing, you know, they're talking and they see these at, at both spots. So it's winter injury is just so unique and it just takes minor changes in the weather or the conditions. 
uh, to, to lead to big changes in the amount of injury that can occur. Absolutely. A couple of years ago here in the New York metro area, we had a Martin Luther King Day flash freeze and everything was looking great. It was a, everything on track to be a nice spring ahead. And just this random band from North Jersey over to kind of Westchester County just had this basically 12, 24-hour period that ruined their spring. <laughs> and everybody else was was sitting pretty, so it, it is random. Paul, winter injury often occurs in areas with poor drainage. If you have poorly draining greens, what can you do in the short term to get through this winter? And what are some long-term strategies to start thinking about? Well, for a winter injury, water plays a huge role. Uh, because we know that, again, there's different types of winter injury, but a lot of the, the common types of winter injury uh, relate to water, either too much or too little. Too little uh, water leads to desiccation injury, which is a very common type of winter injury in, in the Plain States and, and out west. Whereas Midwest and Northeast, we primarily deal with too much water during, uh, during the winter. And not necessarily too much water, but too much water in the wrong spot. So water that pools down near the crown. And anytime we get water near the crown, if it freezes, it can lead to, to serious injury to annual bluegrass uh, in particular. And actually, some nice research from, uh, from Michelle DaCosta at UMass has shown that one of the reasons that annual bluegrass is so susceptible to winter injury is that it wakes up very quickly during the winter. And when those plants wake up, they become you know uh, dehardened and they become very, very susceptible to various things that occur during the winter. So Subsurface drainage is great uh, during the summer. It doesn't help you a ton during the winter because the ground is frozen. So really, we're really focused on surface drainage. Uh, and so you, you want to look at ways that you can increase the surface drainage and get that water off of the putting surface as much as possible or other areas, if it's fairways or tees, areas that where you don't have real good surface drainage. So that can occur a lot of times with sand dams, uh, you know, near the collars on the greens. And so um, an effective way to, to mitigate some of that is to either, you know, use kind of a, you know, a zoysia cutter or some narrow sod cutter to cut a small channel through that sand dam. So the water has some place to go and it doesn't puddle up on the green. I've seen superintendents just cut off whole chunks of, of sod, lay it um, upside down over on the side, over in the rough or something to provide some, some channels for water to go through. The other aspect, though, is, is that's important, the surface drainage and cutting channels in and, and removing, uh, you know, just cutting large chunks of sod out. But once the winter gets started, you're also going to have the snow and the ice build up and prevent flow of the water off the green as well. So you might need to go out there multiple times during the winter, kind of check where the water is flowing and just cut some, cut some channels through the snowbanks. If it's not melting off and if some of the ice and snow is kind of drifted up on the edge of a green, and preventing the water from flowing off, you might want to cut some some channels uh, in the snowbanks or in the ice, you know, walls around a green or whatever to allow that water someplace to go. We want to we want to encourage the water to move off the putting surface as quickly and as effectively uh, as possible, so that it doesn't sit on the green and puddle up. And that's where we tend to get that that crown hydration injury. Moving into more of like cultural and maintenance practices for winter. Raising mowing heights is often at the top of the list of recommendations to prep turf for winter. Do you agree with that, first of all? And uh, what increase in height of cut do you think superintendents should be targeting on putting greens? And uh, should you raise mowing heights on other surfaces? Would that be beneficial? 
Yeah, for me, the, the, the increase in mowing height near the end of the season, and I haven't seen a lot of scientific data on this, but for me, the increase in the mowing height just purely for at the very end of the season, I think the, the, the benefit is, is limited in that situation. Where I think it's more beneficial is to raise the height of cut throughout a large portion of the fall. And what that does is it allows you to it allows you to increase your your photosynthetic efficiency and 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 gaining more energy that you're going to store for the winter, right? The plants aren't photosynthesized to any great degree during the winter, so they need to get all the energy to survive the winter during the fall. You know that's something that we see commonly is that fall shade is really really damaging for turf. And Kevin Frank from Michigan State University does a lot of winter injury work. He's got great pictures where. You've got like one green that shades, uh, that shades, puts shade on a green uh, during the fall. And you go back the next spring and you've got winter injury in just the shade pattern from that one green. So fall shade is, is really damaging to, to, to turf as far as winter injury throughout the fall and winter. And you got to be cognizant of the south facing shade during, uh, during that fall because that south facing uh, shade is really where the sun angle is going to be blocked. So if you don't have shade, in July, that's great, but you need to go back out and recheck it during the fall to make sure that you don't have a lot of shade um, during uh, some of those late fall periods when the plant is really starting to prep for winter. So I think that's a benefit of, of, of increasing your mowing height. I mean, the other benefit would be sort of trying to help keep the, the ice and the water a little bit further away from the crown. You know, I'm, I'm skeptical that that would provide a large benefit on, on greens because you would just need to raise it so much higher. If you would raise it to collar height or to fairway height, yeah, we, we, we tend to see a lot less winter injury on collars and fairways because that height of, of cut is a lot higher. But you're, you're not going to raise it that much on, on, on a putting green. And so I'm skeptical that raising it from a tenth to, you know, to an eighth, I'm skeptical that that would even have much of an impact. So I think the, the increase in the mowing height would be, would be better done throughout the fall to allow the turf to photosynthesize and, and, and gain that energy storage for the winter rather than just do it right before, uh, right before winter. So more of a physiological impact than a, yep. a physical impact for the protection. Heck, Correct. Very interesting. Yeah. I've heard numbers thrown around like increase at 10% before. <laughs> so I th it's just up to you. I think there's so many variables. It's just. Yeah. And there's no data that supports any of it. Right. So this is all sort of. Uh, anecdotal evidence and and feel and and again hopefully we get some better information from this research project in a few years that we can we can relate to the to the industry absolutely and we'll be keeping track of it and uh, I look forward to more results coming out as a plant pathologist I'll give you one in your wheelhouse snow molds snow molds dramatic alarming appearance uh, no superintendent wants to deal with that in the spring yet we're also seeing more of a shift to pink snow mold which is you know, superintendents don't seem to be as alarmed about, but in general, having less snowy winters here in New Jersey, snow mold apps, use, central New Jersey, snow mold apps used to be kind of a standard. And now we're seeing a lot of people skip them, spot treat, maybe some shaded or other areas. But Paul, what, what's a solid snow mold program look like? And then are there any new products that superintendents can take a look at? Sure. Well, there's no, you know, there's no single set of circumstances that I recommend to people to, to implement a snowmobile control program um, or not. You're right. Our, our winter climate is obviously changing. It's not as straightforward as you might think initially. A few years ago, I was sort of under the impression that as our winters warm, we'll, we'll see less snow mold and, uh, and that'll be a disease that we're just less concerned about. But since then, it hasn't supported my initial thoughts. 
uh, because one, we have, uh, we're having less duration of snow cover, even uh, us here in, you know, Wisconsin, the upper Midwest, we're having shorter durations of snow cover. So that would indicate less, less snow mold. However, we're also seeing much warmer falls, which is leading to less hardening of the turf. Uh, so the, the turf is less prepared for winter going into snow cover uh, than it was, you know, previously when we had co- sort of these long cold stretches in November and December. You know, now we have all these swings, right? It'll be it'll be 30 degrees one one week. It'll be 50 degrees the next. The turf is not really preparing for winter in that situation, and it makes it more susceptible to not only snow mold but also especially annual bluegrass to other forms of, of winter injury. So that it's it's not necessarily uh, a straightforward. Um, plan that snowmobile will become less and less of an issue. And actually last winter was a really great example of that. Uh, throughout a lot of the upper Midwest and the Rocky Mountain West, there was large uh, areas that had a lot of snowmobile breakthrough because um, they got they had rain events. They had rain events in early December after they had put out their snowmobile fungicide, washed away a lot of their fungicide. Then they had a lot of snow after that. So these changes in our winter weather, these unpredictable winters that will become more and more common are going to, to lead to more unpredictable um, methods for snowmobile control. So uh, what would I recommend? I always recommend as far as what to put in place to whether you should put in a control program and what kind of control program you should put in place is leave some untreated areas, some, some check plots, right? Get a feel for how severe the pressure is at your golf course. If you have non-treated check plots on your fairways and you don't have any snow mold in three or four years, well, you probably don't have a ton of pressure and you don't need to put out a mixture of four active ingredients over all 30 acres of your fairways, right? So get a feel for what kind of pressure you have at your course. That's, I think, that's the initial step. I can't re- make a recommendation to you until I know how much pressure you normally see at your golf course. Now, as far as practices, uh, avoid the late fall nitrogen fertilization. That's a that's a big key. Uh, that's that's one of our research projects that we're doing as part of Winter Turf. But we have other information that we know that late fall nitrogen fertilization really increases the susceptibility to uh, snow mold because it's not allowing the plant to harden off and prepare for winter. So Doug Soldat, my colleague here at the University of Wisconsin, he's he's done some work that really the plant, once you get in, in the Midwest, once you get past uh, the end of September, the plant is not really effectively taking up a lot of the nitrogen you apply. So really, you can really start to taper off your nitrogen fertilization after, you know, early October, um, that's in the Midwest. So you can kind of adjust that based on, on where you're listening to this, uh, from, but that's a big key. That's probably as, as far as a cultural practice, limiting your late fall nitrogen is probably one of the biggest cultural practices that you can do to, to limit the, uh, the development of snow mold. Other than that, it's managed for shade. Really. That's the other thing that we recommend. The more shade you have, not only are the plants weaker going into, to winter, those areas are going to hold snow uh, for longer, and the the longer it holds snow, the more snow mold you're going to have. Great example we do uh, we do snow mold research at a site up in central Minnesota, north central Minnesota, and uh, the place that we put this uh, this research plot is on the edge of a fairway. There's trees that line the one edge of the fairway. The replications that are right next to the fairway have a ton of snow mold. By the time we go out to reps three and four in the middle of the fairway, away from the shade line have very little snowball. So right, it, it, that shade can have a large impact. As far as products for, uh, in particular, pink snowmobile control, I would say there's a lot of new products that have come out, um, but the really the most effective fungicide active ingredients for specifically pink snowmobile. And I would agree, John, that 
as our winters do change, we'll see more pink snow mold and less gray snow mold just because of the, the speed at which the pink snow mold fungus can grow. But the products that are most effective for pink snow mold are active ingredients like iprodiol, uh, active ingredients like fludioxinol, and uh, one of the newer ones is uh, Densicore. Uh, those are probably the top products slash active ingredients for uh, pink snow mold control. I was playing a little bit of devil's advocate there with the, what should I do in my course? Well, it's, uh, it's, it can be a different situation for folks just down the road, depending on so many different factors. And we, we, it can be frustrating for folks asking uh, sometimes consultants and others for advice. Like, well, there's no one size fits all. Even courses just a few miles away can get very different recommendations because of their so unique soils, trees, what the golfers need. So thank you for that. You you reminded me of something else, speaking of things that come out of social media, mowing after spraying snow mold applications. Is that a big no-no? Well, you don't want to do it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you're going you're gonna to re be removing some of the product, right? So um, we, we've done research here at Wisconsin. It was actually my PhD research project was looking at how snow mold fungicides persist during the winter. So after you apply them, what happens to them after uh, throughout the rest of the winter? And what we found very clearly in that research and then another follow-up research project that we're working on publishing right now is that the, the products don't persist very effectively during the winter. If you get a snow melt event or if you get a, rain, a winter rainfall event, the majority of that product uh, goes away, washes away very quickly. And that happens whether it's a contact fungicide like chlorothanol, we tested that, whether it's a localized penetrant like iprodiol, we tested that, or whether it's a systemic, a, a, an acropital penetrant like propiconazole. We tested all three products, and when it rained or when the snow melted, we lost a lot of that product in a very short period of time. But that's not to say that you know you always have to reapply snowball fungicides all the time anytime it rains or the snow melts. Most of the impact of your snow mold fungicide occurs when you initially spray it. And that knocks back the snow mold fungi. As long as the snow mold fungi are actively growing, they will absorb that fungicide and they'll be, they'll be knocked back. They'll be stunted back. So that's the majority of the impact of your snow mold fungicide. And then hopefully at least persists for a few weeks, your fungicides. And then, you know, if you get a snow, mold, a snow melt or a rainfall event, the product is gone and the snow mold fungi can start to regrow, but normally it takes so long for these slow growing fungi to grow that we don't normally see, um, we, we don't normally see breakthrough. So as far as mowing, that's, that's going to be a removal of the product that you don't necessarily need to do. So uh, if you can avoid it, I would avoid it because you're going to be physically removing some of that fungicide uh, from the system by removing the leaf blades that have the fungicide on it. So I get if it's really long and you're just concerned about scalping or something like that coming out from next spring, you can go out and do it, but just be knowledgeable that you're going to be removing a bunch of this of the fungicide from the system. Gotcha. And going back, you had also mentioned the late season nitrogen applications. For a while, kind of when I was coming up as a superintendent, a lot of folks were doing late season soluble potassium applications with this kind of mindset that it would somehow harden, harden off the plant. Um, do you have uh, any thoughts on that? Is that still a worthwhile recommendation? Yeah, it depends. Uh, the data that we've collected recently, it depends on the species of grass you have. So we've, we've got, there's been two studies that have provided two completely different answers because they were done on two different species of grass. And of course, that's, you know, that's always how science works. <laughs> 
But Doug Soldat here at Wisconsin, he did, he looked at potassium and not just for snowmobile, he looked at it for a number of things. And he looked at potassium and different rates of potassium on a, a pure stand of creeping bent grass at our research facility in Madison. What he found very clearly is that uh, the more potassium there was, the more snow mold. And we had pink snow mold uh, at our research facility in the years that he added. And it built up over time, right? So when he was doing this study in year, years one and two, he saw maybe a little bit of difference between snow mold development, between the higher potassium rates and the lower potassium rates. But once he got to year four and five, he was seeing very large differences in the amount of pink snow mold that developed. Um, and research out of Cornell has shown the same thing on bent grass with gray snow mold. The more potassium, the more snow mold you get. However, to complicate matters, uh, Rutgers uh, has done, a, of course, a lot of research with uh, potassium and annual bluegrass for anthracnose control. And what they noticed on those plots is that the plots that had been receiving more potassium had less pink snow mold. Uh, and actually also were a little bit more resilient or resistant to, to winter injury they found in one particular winter. So it kind of depends on the grass species you have. From the data that we have now, if you have uh, a pure or mostly pure stand of bent grass, you would not want to fertilize with potassium. And it's not just during late season, right? It was, it was all a year round. So you would want to limit the amount of potassium that you're putting down all season. But if you have predominantly annual bluegrass stand of turf, uh, you would want to you would want to put down more fertility and more potassium to not only protect against snow mold, but also apparently winter injury. And then, of course, also the work on anthracnose that that Bruce Clark and his team did and showed with with potassium. So depends on the species of grass that you got. Paul, I'll wrap up on a question about covers, everybody's favorite winter topic. You mentioned it earlier during the icebreaker project, but just to kind of go a little more into depth on that. You know, impermeable covers for annual bluegrass greens is kind of like the this other than ultra dwarf covers to protect them from short term cold snaps in the south. That's kind of the one of the main uses of covers on putting greens. Are there any other situations where you would think about covering a green? And then while a green is covered with an impermeable cover, should you be doing anything during that time, checking in on anything? Definitely. Yeah. Covers are, are the, it, it's kind of like back going back to the ice removal question. If you don't have to use covers, don't, uh, because they're expensive. They're hard to put out. You, then you got to storm during uh, store them during the rest of the summer. So you need, you need storage facilities for that. And you know, they tear all the time. You got to replace them. So there, I mean, they're, they're a significant investment in time and money and energy. So if you don't have to use covers, then, then I wouldn't, but of course, Dealing with that is is better than trying to get a dead green to recover during during the course of the growing season. So, you know, it's all trade offs. So, um, the different different covers are going to have different different impacts, right? So, so we have kind of in general we have impermeable covers and permeable covers. Uh, so, with the permeable covers, those are primarily beneficial uh, against uh, desiccation injury. So, we just want to keep a little bit of uh, of moisture uh, near the surface. Those are good at doing that. They're also good for increasing the temperature during spring. If you want to, if you're doing some recovery, that's one other thing the icebreaker project found is that um, permeable covers can help increase the rate of germination and growth of seedlings when you're trying to recover from, from damage. But, but permeable covers are not really going to provide much help with crown hydration injury, which is, which is the one form that I think most superintendents are really, really uh, concerned about. Um, and so impermeable covers 
uh, can help with, with that because they will keep the water from getting down near uh, the crown and freezing down there and, and, and causing causing death of the crown, which of course is, leads death of the plant. However, impermeable covers are just that. They don't, they don't have holes in them or they don't permeate, so there's going to be no gas exchange naturally. And so I've seen it on several cases where there was more death following a lack of gas exchange under an impermeable cover than there was from actual natural winter injury. So you'll need to have a system for gas exchange. So oftentimes what that is, is, you know, you might have some PVC pipe that runs under or some drain tile that just runs on the surface of the green under the tarp. And then you go out every few weeks with a blower and just kind of blow under, blow in those pipes or blow in those, uh, those drain tiles um, and just get some sort of gas exchange, uh, gas exchange under there. So that's, that's a really critical part. The other thing is just coming back to what I mentioned before, your stomal pressure under those impermeable covers will be higher. So you would want to just be aware of that and make sure that you have a strong snowmobile protection program under those impermeable covers. Kind of, you'll need to sort of increase the protection uh, that you would otherwise need when you're under impermeable cover. Very good. Dr. Paul Koch, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Some great info as courses up north prepare for the long winter ahead. And I'll also add that the USGA is again presenting partner of the GCSA conference and trade show. So I'll encourage folks to check out two seminars that you'll be presenting in Phoenix, including, I like this one, the, the pest I love to kill. I think we can all relate to that. What was the other one on? The other one that I'm presenting on is um, uh, sustainable pesticide usage in golf course management. That's right. Two great topics. So if you're headed to Phoenix, please check them out if you can. Paul, thanks again and hope you have a great holiday. Thanks for joining us and giving us some great info as we head into winter. Great. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. That's it for another episode of the USGA Green Section podcast. Please share, subscribe, and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And keep up with our latest content on X and by subscribing to the Green Section Record, our twice a month digital publication covering all things golf course management. Thank you.